When I was growing up, I went to a high school that was founded in the year 1600 by an Archbishop of Canterbury by the name of John Whitgift. It was at that point little more than 40 years since one of his predecessors, Thomas Cranmer, had been executed at the stake for his Protestant beliefs by Queen Mary. And so it's perhaps no surprise that Whitgift chose as the motto for his new school, Winkit qui patitur, he who suffers succeeds or conquers. You see, his generation knew of the kind of victory that can only be won through suffering. That was the kind of victory that undergirded the Protestant Reformation on every side. But it's very different from the models of victory that we're used to in our day and age. For us, victory generally means standing tall and strong, fighting off all comers with one hand tied behind your back. Growing up, our heroes were often comic book characters, Superman, Captain America, who could hold off entire tank divisions with his steely gaze and emerge from every encounter with barely a scratch on his hand or a mark on his pristine superhero outfit. Or perhaps your model was Barbie, who managed to combine working by, the day, by day as a vet with uh, going on in her pink Jeep to Malibu at the weekend to go surfing with Ken. She had babies without stretch marks or gaining an ounce and did it all with perfect hair and in high heels. As a result, we tend to identify victory in similar terms in our own lives. We feel we're victorious people if our careers are successful, our homes are large, our families beautiful, and our children well behaved. In spiritual terms, we're victorious if our churches are growing and thriving, and if we personally are somewhere close to being free from all known sin. And we have perfectly catechized children who know the answers to every Bible trivia question. But the reality we inhabit is often something entirely different. Perhaps your career is in a slump, your marriage is a mass of tensions waiting to explode, and the last time you left your children home alone, they got hold of a bottle of alcohol and got drunk. Perhaps you've just discovered that your wife has terminal cancer, and the prognosis is grim, or you're concerned about the coronavirus. Maybe you feel like the result of this will be losing your house to foreclosure, bringing to an end the dreams of a comfortable retirement. Life is not like the comic books with which we grew up. It's a hard grind, a wrestling match with sin and brokenness, both your own and that of others around you and the world in which we live, in which bruising losses accumulate and victories often seem few and far between. What does victory look like in a world like this? What, what does it mean to live a victorious Christian life in this fallen universe. Well, that's what this passage in Isaiah is meant to show us. We're perhaps so familiar with the most quotable verses of Isaiah 53 that we may forget that this prophecy had its context in which it was originally spoken. God's people to whom it was being written were broken by their own sin and the consequence of their sin, the point where they would find themselves in exile in Babylon. They felt cut off and abandoned by God because of their sins. And in a profound sense, they were. But that was not the end of their story. Into the pain and brokenness of their messy lives, God sent a prophet with a message of good news. He said, comfort, comfort my people. Tell them their God reigns. Tell them I myself am coming to bring light into the darkness and hope into their despair. 
Tell them their hard service is over, their iniquity is paid for, and there is a new future ahead of them. Tell them about the new heavens and new earth that I, the Lord, am bringing into existence. Tell them that I myself will put on my armor and free them from their bondage. But how would such an astounding victory be won? How could God take such weak and sinful people who had failed over and over again and change them into oaks of righteousness? How could rebellious, hard-hearted Israel be transformed into the Lord's faithful servant? Now, these are the questions that this passage addresses. It depicts a triumphant victory that comes through crushing pain and suffering. An amazing deliverance that comes through apparent defeat. A glorious hope that comes through utter helplessness. How does the Lord provide beautiful robes of righteousness for his defiled bride? How does the strong arm of the Lord win his astonishing victory? Well, the answer is that it comes as he afflicts the obedient servant in our place. To paraphrase the old line from Star Trek, this is victory, Jim, but not as we know it. What's more, this victory, but not as we know it, that Isaiah foresaw becomes the pattern for our own redemption as Christians and for the shape of our renewed Christian lives. Winkit ki patator, he who suffers conquers, becomes our motto also. Through Christ, we have the victory but it's a victory that comes to us and lives in us through suffering. A passage has a distinct structure that helps us to grasp its message. It's five stanzas of three verses each, 13 to 15 in chapter 52, and then one through three, four through six, seven through nine, and 10 through 12, arranged in a chiastic order around the center. In other words, stanzas one through five are parallel, both focusing on the victory of the servant Stanzas two and four are parallel, focusing on the realities of the servant's suffering, while the central stanza, stanzas three, shows us the reason for the servant's suffering. The passage begins with a cry, Behold my servant! A declaration that connects this poem back to the first of the servant's songs in 42.1. In other words, the figure who appears is a description of the Lord's chosen servant, the one who faithfully does the Lord's will, the one who accomplishes the Lord's purposes. This servant will act wisely. That is, he'll act in a way that will succeed or will prosper. Indeed, he will be raised and lifted up. Attributes that elsewhere are only applied to the Lord. For example, in Isaiah 6, his victory will be the Lord's ultimate triumph, the great demonstration of the Lord's cosmic kingship. Now, it's important to notice that we begin with the end of the story. Otherwise, we might easily become confused. We have to, if we don't see the servant's uh, victory at the outset, we might not understand what happens next. And the poem ends on that same note of victory in verses 11 and 12, when the servant finally sees the results of his sufferings and is satisfied. This makes it clear to us from beginning to end that this song is not a tragic dirge over some unfortunate defeat, but a glorious exaltation in victory. 
But having established that this is indeed a triumphant victory song, we immediately cut starkly from the exaltation of victory to the agony of apparent defeat. A defeat so awful that it left people frankly astonished at what they saw. So great was the servant's disfigurement. The servant was broken and bruised by his sufferings. So much so that he barely appeared human anymore, made almost unrecognizable through his wounds. And yet somehow this grotesque disfigurement was the means by which he would carry out his priestly work of sprinkling the nations, purifying them through his own sufferings. The nations, which previously neither saw nor heard the message of the prophet, would now hear and see. And as a result, they would believe and be saved. But what about God's own people? Would they also come flocking to the servants and believe? After all, the problem earlier in Isaiah was not the nations. It was Israel's own hard-heartedness. Would those to whom God's power had been revealed amongst the nations finally respond with faith? Sadly, the answer seems to be still no. Those who had not heard the message believe, but those closest to the prophet remain unbelieving. Many nations would hear and respond, but we did not esteem him. Why not? Why was there no response by God's people to this extraordinary display of the Lord's power? Well, the answer is that this is not the kind of salvation that they expected. This salvation comes not in power, but in weakness. Not like a green and fruitful tree of the kind depicted in Psalm 1, but as a gnarly dried up root sprouting out of dry and cracked soil. This kind of root out of dry ground was nonetheless a messianic figure. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, the Lord promised to bring a branch from Jesse's roots. Same Hebrew word. But this new root doesn't look like any of the original sons of Jesse. He had no extraordinary beauty or attractiveness like Eliab, Jesse's oldest, nor even like David himself, who we are told was ruddy and handsome. Instead, the servant takes into himself all of the negative aspects of life here on earth. He is despised and rejected by men. A man thoroughly acquainted with sorrows. Somebody who knew what it is to experience choli, a Hebrew word often translated grief, but more precisely meaning sickness. We flee from pain and suffering in ourselves and our other, in others because it reminds us of our own vulnerability and weakness. But unlike us, the servant moves towards suffering, towards pain, towards weakness, and embraces it as his defining characteristic. He is a man of sorrows, a man whose entire life experience is characterized by sorrows. But why should there be such sorrowing and suffering for an obedient servant of the Lord? I mean, you could understand why an unfaithful servant might experience chastisement, and severe discipline from his master, even to the point where it might define his life. As the book of Proverbs tells us, the way of the transgressor is hard. In Isaiah 1, rebellious Israel was described as being struck down, sick, covered with wounds as a result of the Lord's judgment. Words that all recur here in Isaiah 53. But surely the way of the obedient servant 
or to be smooth and pleasant beside still waters and in green pastures. Surely the obedient servant should flourish like a green tree, not struggle for his very survival like a root out of dry ground. What on earth is going on here? And the central section of the song unfolds the central mystery of the passage, indeed of the whole Bible. It turns out that it is our sorrows that the obedient servant is bearing. It is our sickness that he is enduring. It is our suffering that he took up. His life disfiguring pain and agony was the bitter fruit of my sin and yours, which the servant bears for us in our place. We all went astray like sheep, wandering away from beside the still waters and green pastures. We went in search of something that seemed to us better in the process bringing ourselves into the valley of deep shadow, which ought to have been our final tragic resting place. The wages of our sin deserves death. But the Lord laid the punishment for our iniquity on him. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. The punishment that we deserve was laid on someone else in our place, on the servant. The prophet continues to unpack that idea in the fourth stanza. We all went astray like sheep, but he was the one who paid the sheep-like penalty. He was slaughtered like a defenseless, submissive animal, chosen to become an atoning sacrifice. The servant was deprived of justice and of descendants. And in the ultimate ignominy, he was buried with the rich and the wicked, sharing the fate of those who earlier in the book are comprehensively judged for their oppression of God's people. And yet his fate was completely without any foundation within himself. Unlike the rich and wicked oppressors, the servant did not open his mouth to deceit or to pursue violence any more than he earlier opened it in his own self-defense. His suffering and death was utterly undeserved. But what would be the outcome of this undeserved suffering? There's a play of words in verse 10. It was the Lord's will to crush his servant, because only by doing so could the will of the Lord prosper in his hand. Yet the will of the Lord is not some cold and abstract decree. The word that is used for will here is used elsewhere of to be pleased or to delight. The Lord actually delighted to crush his faithful servant because he knew the incredible outcome that would result as his broken relationship with humanity was gloriously restored. It's not as if the servant had to wrestle sinners to safety out of the hands of an angry God. On the contrary, the achievement of their salvation had been the Father's delight and purpose from the beginning. And the servant too understood what all his suffering was for. After his anguish, he was promised he would see the light of God's salvation and be satisfied. Through his knowledge, his personal experience of sickness, suffering and sorrow, he would make the many righteous and thereby acceptable to a holy God. Through his sufferings, the Lord would give the servant the inheritance that he has earned. It was for this joy set before him that he endured all these things. So how should we respond 
to this picture of a victory that comes through such unrelenting suffering. Well, to begin with, it addresses us as those who are in need of salvation ourselves. How could we possibly think that our best attempts to please God could win us salvation if nothing less than God himself taking on flesh and sharing so deeply in our sufferings would be needed to save us? Our salvation is by grace alone, not because of anything in us. Or to put it another way, if all that were needed were for your salvation, for your salvation were for you to turn over a new leaf and just try harder to be a good person, then the servant's suffering was a monumental waste of a life. On the contrary, this passage shows us our utter lostness. We are all sheep that have deliberately wandered off. We are all sinners who have broken God's holy law. We are all rebels who have transgressed against his rule in our lives. And the wages for these things is death, as Paul reminded the Romans. That reality, of course, was not news to Isaiah's hearers, who were experiencing the death of exile in Babylon for their nation's sins. But it is news to many around you who think that, of course, God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives. They're aware that they may need to get their act together a little bit, to work on upping their religious achievement score a bit to win God's favor. But how hard can that be? Impossibly hard, says God. His standard for your life is perfection, and none of us can measure up to that standard. If giving it your best shot and trying hard is all that you have got, then you are utterly without hope in this world. Nor are we much better after we're saved. We continue to wander off in our own way, to rebel against God's perfect law daily. But God does not leave us to ourselves. The good shepherd came looking for lost sheep. The suffering servant took into himself all of the suffering that our sins deserved. The servant entered the dark and broken reality that we inherited from our first parents alongside us. And he has tasted all of its bitter brokenness for us. He came and experienced headaches, colds, flus, diarrhea, broken relationships, mourning at the grave of a loved one. Jesus knows what these things are. Not just as an abstract intellectual concept, but through his own bitter personal experience. And even more profoundly, on Good Friday, on that cross, Jesus took into himself the full cost of our sins. He was truly pierced for our transgressions and wounded for our iniquities in ways that we will never fully understand. He became sin for us. The agonies of the hell that we deserve were embraced in their fullness by the servant so that we, the guilty ones, would never have to taste that cup. But who is this mysterious servant? In the book of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch asked that question as he read this passage from Isaiah on his way home from Jerusalem. He asked Philip, of whom is the prophet speaking, of himself or someone else? And beginning with this passage, Philip told him the good news about Jesus and the hope that is to be found through faith in him alone. Jesus alone has followed this path of suffering that is necessary to free us from deserved punishment. As a result, 
the promise of this passage that the nations will be sprinkled and cleansed through the work of the servant was fulfilled as the Ethiopian eunuch trusted his life to Christ and was baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Through baptism, the Ethiopian eunuch was added to God's kingdom and identified uh, with the one who had died and who was raised for him. And he went home to his faraway land rejoicing. An example of the progress of the good news from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The uniqueness of the suffering servant shows the uniqueness of the Christian message. No other religion has the same gospel to declare. No other religion proclaims that their God has suffered in their place to atone for their sins. Lots of religions speak of moral reformation and trying hard to win God's favor. Only Christianity proclaims peace with God through the death of his own son. Christ alone is our hope. What is more, that same gospel of the suffering and risen servants, Jesus Christ, is the good news that we have been commissioned to bring to all nations. The one who bore our sins in his body on the tree has many other wandering sheep who are yet to hear that message, yet to respond in faith and be saved by him. And how shall they be saved unless they hear this unique gospel? And how will they hear unless someone is sent by God to bring them this glorious good news? What a high and beautiful calling it is to bear such incredible, joyful tidings. But this passage also says something to us about the nature of this task of bringing the good news to the nations. Servants are not greater than the master. If Jesus' pathway through this world involved embracing suffering and pain, seeking out and identifying with the lost and the broken, so also will ours. His progress through life was not a stately glide from glory to glory, but rather a messy, daily taking up of his cross, suffering in our place, so that through his death and resurrection, he could enter glory with many redeemed brothers and sisters. Now, if that's true, our calling as those who've been entrusted with the gospel is not to be super apostles, constantly wowing people with our own personal strength and glorious accomplishments. Rather, it is that we too are called to take up our own cross and follow after him along that same Good Friday road of weakness and brokenness and inability through which God does his remarkable work. We are all chipped and cracked clay pots, even though by God's grace we contain a treasure of enormous value in the gospel. We are all weak and insufficient witnesses, even though by God's grace our words contain the power to transform hearts and lives of men and women as the Spirit chooses to use them. Indeed, God's plan for us is that we should walk through this world in great weakness, moral, physical, and spiritual, so we might never forget our desperate need for the one who walked this path perfectly in our place. His primary goal is not your perfect obedience and success, which might enable you to claim some of the glory for yourself. His goal is Christ's glory, which becomes all the more visible through our great weakness even through our ongoing struggles with indwelling sin. That's why Paul reminds the Ephesians not to lose heart over his sufferings and imprisonment for them, 
Those sufferings, Paul declared, are not a sign of his failure or God's failure. On the contrary, his sufferings were the means by which the gospel was finally coming to the Gentiles, just as the Old Testament declared. Now, it's true that our sufferings are not redemptive in the way that Jesus's were. We are not pierced for others' transgressions. We cannot bear their iniquities. But the task of bringing to others the good news of Jesus' sacrificial sufferings will necessarily involve us in lives that are patterned after his. Our sufferings are always redeemed by God, made opportunities for him to show his love and his care for us, the sufficiency of his grace in the midst of our weakness. That reality changes our thinking about missions. In the first place, it reminds us that we need to recover the call to sacrificial service. Today, many people tell you you can serve God without cost. They regard it as a strange suggestion that you might actually need to sacrifice something to follow the Lord, whether in becoming a missionary yourself or supporting others on the mission field. In contrast, those pioneer missionaries who went to West Africa in the 19th century packed their goods in a coffin because their life expectancy was so short, a few months at most. They knew they were on a one-way trip, literally giving up everything in this world to die in response to the Lord's call. But the message of Christ's victory through suffering also challenges us to rethink our definitions of success and failure in life as a whole. As I said at the beginning, we tend to measure our lives in terms of our victories and our accomplishments. We've succeeded if we can point to career achievements, to raising a model family, to a nice house, and all of the stuff that goes with that. But what if we're called to lives that are patterned after a suffering servant? In that case, maybe success for some will not look like a green tree, but more like a root planted in dry soil. A root that glorifies God not by the size of the harvest that it bears, but simply that against all odds, the gospel enables it to survive in otherwise utterly barren soil. Was it worthwhile for those pioneer missionaries to give up everything they had to go somewhere where they would die within a few months of tropical fever? Was it worthwhile for them when they buried their children and their wives and had nothing glorious to report in letters back home? If the goal of missions is to see the world converted and to plant the maximum number of churches, then their lives would have been better spent elsewhere. But if the goal of missions is to bring glory to God by being conformed to the likeness of Christ, the suffering servant, then few people ever live more successfully. They lay down their very lives to the glory of God, even if no one today remembers their names. They conquered through suffering in lives that were patterned after that of their Savior. At the end of his suffering, the servant saw the results of his labors, and he was satisfied. What a remarkable statement. The Lord of glory left the comfort and adulation of heaven and came to earth, where he experienced pain and suffering, rejection and ridicule, beating and physical abuse before being nailed to a cross where he eked out his last breaths in intense physical and spiritual agony, the like of which the world has never seen. 
And yet when Jesus looks out at his redeemed people, as he looks out over his church, he is satisfied. He doesn't look at the mess that is your life and my life, at the struggles and challenges of our local church and say, what was I thinking? No, he looks at you and me and he says, I love it. I love the outcome of my sufferings. I love these people with all of their problems, all of their failures, all of their sin, all of their weaknesses. They are so precious to me that every single bit of what I suffered on Good Friday was absolutely worthwhile. And today, God calls you to delight in the gospel the same way that he does. Look upon Jesus, the servant who suffered and lost everything in your place and conquered through those sufferings. Behold the Lamb of God, now raised up and exalted to heaven, where he's been given the name above every name. Let your heart thrill afresh as you ponder the cost and the reality of your salvation, which has been accomplished and finished in his death and resurrection. And then respond to the Spirit's call to be a witness to that glorious good news of victory through suffering wherever he has placed you, in your home, in your family, when all this is over, in your school, in your workplace, maybe even to the ends of the earth. Pray that he will give you a heart that is willing to serve and to suffer for the sake of the greatness of Jesus. And look forward to the day when you too will behold the fullness of God's harvest. A great multitude of people from every tribe and nation and people group who have been saved by God's grace through the suffering of Jesus by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. On that day, all of our sufferings will come to an end. The harvest will be complete and we will join the triumphant servant in his victory. On that day, both he and we will be fully satisfied by the reward that he has gained through his 